You're listening to So What? The podcast that explores why library and information science research matters. We interview researchers about their work. And they connect the dots between what they do and its importance to your life. Okay, let's get on it. Hello, I'm Alex Mayhew from the Faculty of Information and Media Studies here at Western Ontario. Today I'm with Joel Sherlock. Joel, tell us a bit about yourself and what you do. I am the Manager of Genealogical and Archival Research at Indigenous Services Canada in Gatineau, Quebec. I'm in charge of coordinating First Nations genealogical research projects, and I coordinate these projects and supervise a small team. Now, you were mentioning earlier to me that uh, it's not a conventional archives. Can you tell me a little bit more about how that works? Yeah, so we're not a public archives that is open to anyone to do anything. We're a government archives with a very narrow mandate to assist First Nations individuals in understanding their family history and the projects that we do have a specific purpose in helping them. We also support the Indian Registration Program Indigenous Services Canada, which is responsible for registering individuals and issuing secure certificates of Indian status, otherwise known as Indian status cards. Actually, I want to get back to the question of First Nations-related research uh, Mm -hmm. in, in a bit. But more generally, what sort of research is done at your archives? So we have on microfiche uh, and on paper um, archival records such as treaty pay lists, the original Indian register that was created in 1951 and was used until the early 1990s, as well as the digital Indian, uh, Indian register that's used today. And we essentially try to confirm the research that members of the public have already done and see if we can validate the research they've done in our records and maybe add a little bit more. And some of this research is for the purpose of just knowing their family history. Others are for a specific purpose, such as um, immigration to the United States and in order to uh, get uh, their births registered. So can you uh, tell me exactly what a register is? So the Indian Register, back in 1949, the federal government had a difficult time determining which Indigenous people were entitled to treaty benefits and government benefits and who were not. So they requested every band in the country to submit a list of their members. And these lists were posted in various band offices, and members of each band were able to scrutinize these lists, add people that that maybe were missed, uh, subtract people that maybe passed away. And these lists were brought together and were the basis for the first Indian registration system, um, which was then created in 1951. And that system was used so that the government could be certain who was entitled to the government benefits as a result of treaties and who was not. I I have to ask, what did they do beforehand? I mean, you mentioned that it wasn't a very good system, but I have to imagine they had something. Well, it's a bit difficult. Every band in Canada has signed some sort of treaty but the, they would only keep track of, keep good track, I should say, of the people to whom were due an annual treaty payment every year. So not every treaty that was signed across Canada necessarily yielded an annual payment to each individual band member. So generally, the treaties that did yield money are located in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and some parts of Ontario. So those although I don't think they were intended necessarily to be membership lists, 
they can be somewhat co-opted for that purpose. But they were initially just meant to track who got paid treaty that year and who didn't. In other provinces, such as British Columbia and in the Six Nations Reserve near Brantford, Ontario, there were Indian agents that kept it censusless. It's obvious for you know, population and um, demographics purposes. So those were kept. But there were places like in Quebec and the Maritimes and the, the Northern Territories here in Canada. No lists were really kept until 1951. And of course, there are also bands that maybe weren't recognized in the 19th or early 20th century who have since signed treaties in, since 1951. And so we won't have information for their band until they signed a treaty. So I, I want to dive in a bit more to the research that's being done at your archival institution. Well, what would you call it? Would you just call it an archives? Or? We're a government program. Archive, I guess, would be the closest to it. So I want to ask, what sort of qualities does your archive have and the records that you have that uh, impacts the research people do? Or what qualities does it lack? Sure. So um, a huge source, like I said, uh, of our research are treaty payless. The challenge of a treaty payless, though, again, it's, a, it's an accounting record. And so some of the limitations of treaty payless are that in each entry, on each line of the paylist, only, it only names the head of the household. And in the next columns, it says, this is, how many, this is how many men live in the household, this is how many women live in the household, this is how many boys and girls live in the household. So the man usually refers to the husband, which is usually the head of the household for that time period. The woman, there's usually just one, and that's the, the, the spouse. And the boys and girls usually refer to uh, the children, that couple. But those individuals, unless they have husbands, are often not named um, in the record. So sometimes if a, if a child passes away before, before they reach adulthood, sometimes we don't know their names. And that's, that's a little bit sad as well. The, you, there is also sexism is manifest in that um, often women are not named in these, on these treaty pay lists either. And so even if their husband passes away, Sometimes it'll just say, in you know, John Smith, in brackets, widow. And so they, there wasn't even an impetus to change the name on the entry of this of the pay list uh, to reflect the female having assumed the head of the household rule. So that's, those are limitations that, that, that we see very often. It's also challenging sometimes um, to track people because there's a pay list for every year in which treat, treaty is paid. So children... Kit will only get their own entry on the pay list when they turn 18 years old. A boy or a girl could receive their get their own entry when they're when they're 18 years old. However, when women get married, they assume the entry of their husband. So, if a woman has, if they turn 18 but they don't move away from home, or they just get married and move out of home right into their married home, sometimes we never know that that woman's name unless they live until 1951, in which case we will then see what their name is because we, we took, we, the, the department took a better uh, records and took notice of names. You also mentioned that other things like terminology used in the records can be important. Yeah, the terminology can be challenging as well. Sometimes there will be a notation in the treaty pay list that says, woman married to non-treaty man. And so it's tempting to make the assumption that that's an individual that does not have Indigenous heritage, does not have First Nation heritage from outside of the community. Um, but that's not always true. The history of Indian registration is such that if you were a boy, a boy or a girl, and you were the child of a First Nation woman but a non-First Nation man, you were not entitled to status. And so it's very possible that that 
man that that woman is marrying could be the child of that of that situation. So that's not always clear. Also, the, you see this old terminology such as half-breed, uh, which is very problematic. I don't think I need to go into the, why that's problematic. Indeed. But that's often interpreted as a, a Métis individual. But back in the, the early 20th century, I don't think there was a consensus as to what half-breed meant. So sometimes half-breed could be applied to a First Nation individual that's of a, from a mixed household. So there, sometimes we have to kind of put our assumptions aside and dig a little bit deeper to figure out where these individuals actually came from because in today's terminology, maybe they would not be considered Métis or maybe they would not be considered a non-status individual. You can see how that would be a complicating factor for research. Yes. You've also mentioned issues with geographic coverage in other places. As I'd mentioned before, we... Un the unfortunate part of, of my reality is that we don't have equal coverage for every band across Canada. As I'd said before, some the trees that were signed that yielded a payment to First Nation individuals, we can go a lot farther back in history for them than those that didn't. So unfortunately for some bands, we can only go back to 1951 when, in, when um, Indian status was... Uh, generalized across the country, and sometimes we can't go back farther than that. If I have a client that's looking for a, an ancestor that passed away before 1951 or before the time in which they, they, they signed treaty, I can't help them, unfortunately. And uh, that's most common for the regions of Quebec and the Maritimes and uh, parts of the Northwest Territories in the Yukon. I want to ask a little bit about some of the records themselves in the archives. In particular, you mentioned that you use microfiche. Yes. That's not the newest technology. Does that provide any um, special issues? Yeah, the microfiche is problematic um, because they're, of course, copies of the original archival records. Although I'm grateful for the microfiche because that makes the shelf space required a lot smaller. It makes it a lot more manageable. But, you know, when, when you take an image of a record, there's also, there's always a little bit of degradation. Even when you digitize an, 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 an image... It's never better than the, the original image. And so sometimes the microfiche are very faint and very difficult to read. I'm also in the process of digitizing these records as well. And even my digitized images aren't as good as the microfiche sometimes. But sometimes the images are very faint. And combined with some, some Indian agents have terrible penmanship. Um, they're very difficult to read. Um, also, some individuals identified themselves with their First Nation names. And sometimes those names are just spelt phonetically, and that phonetic spelling uh, can vary from year to year. And so those are some of the challenges that we have with the microfiche and in dealing with um, old records. So uh, we've talked about uh, some of the limitations and maybe some of the qualities missing from the archive that one could hope were there. What about some successes? Tell me what, what things people come and look for that you have. Well, I think what I'm really proud of and what I'm really proud of what we do is that we try to help individuals with practical problems that will have a positive impact on their lives. So are you familiar with the Jay Treaty at all? I am not. Tell me about that. So the Jay Treaty, there's a treaty signed called the Jay Treaty, J-A-Y, signed between the United States and the British Crown way back in 1793. And the Jay Treaty uh, treated a wide range of diplomatic issues in North America between I'll call them Canadians for simplicity, the Canadians and the Americans. 
And one of the issues that this treaty covered was the issue of First Nation migration and whether First Nations should be restricted in crossing the U.S.-Canada border. And um, it was determined in this treaty, which is kind of progressive for the time, that First Nations and the Inuit should have no restriction in crossing the border, which is very interesting. And the United States today interprets this treaty in the, their immigration legislation that Canadian-born First Nations um, who have 50% Indian blood, I'm quoting that, should not only have uninhibited access to the United States, but they can work in the United States without a visa and even obtain a green card for free. So one thing that we do in order to help the genealogy, the heritage side of our clients' applications, we'll provide a letter that briefly, briefly outlines their Indigenous history, their, their First Nations history. And they can take our letter from us and take that to the border and uh, use that as proof of their heritage. If the immigration officer is satisfied that they meet the blood quantum, as they call it, the 50% Indian blood, they can get those benefits. And so I've been able to help a lot of people cross the border, get better jobs, even help one person successfully do a, uh, a transfer within her company to a, a better position without having to go through the difficulty that immigration can sometimes be. So that's, that's what I'm most proud of, and I think that's, that's probably the most important service that we offer. That's fantastic. Well, I want to talk again a little bit more about what, what do you think the best practices are for managing an archives, especially related to supporting research? In my case, my first, this is going to sound totally opposite to what you just asked, my first uh, responsibility is to protect the information in the archives because we have a lot of personal information of people that are still living and a lot of uh, sensitive information as well. So the first thing I need to do is protect the archives. So I can only allow authorized people uh, to come in here. But th there are a lot of third people, third-party researchers that obtain authorization to come into. So I, I just try to accommodate them as best I can, ensure that they have space to to do their research, that uh, I can accommodate the time in which they come, and direct them properly to the records that they need. I think in terms of managing the archives, it's very important to, it's so cliche, you've got to know your collection. And that's for several reasons. One, you can direct people, but you can also have confidence in that when a project is finished, that's actually finished. Sometimes I'll, I'll have a novice I'll be training a, a novice uh, to do the research that we do, and he'll come to me with a report, and it won't quite be complete. And I'll, I'll have to ask them, did you consult this resource? And so I'll make sure I can, I can direct them properly to, to where they need to be. But again, a big uh, part of the job is being confident that um, the results that we have are the correct results and that we haven't missed anything. And that's very important to me because there is a distrust that the First Nations in Canada, Indigenous people as a whole, have toward the federal government. And so we need to be confident that we're not cutting corners and, and inhibiting uh, progress in that relationship. I'm not upset that they don't trust the government. I think they've earned, earned that distrust. And so we need to work hard as, as, a, as a federal government to kind of renew that relationship and, and, and do our work in, in good faith. That makes sense to me. Mm -hmm. We support other research as well. Some third parties, some third parties that come in are research firms that have been hired by First Nations. 
is they want to do some research on land claims. And so we support that research, although my team doesn't really do that itself. We do that land claim research. Some other neat research that we do is that uh, so there are some, these mostly applies to elderly people today, but there are individuals in Canada who were born in very remote areas that never had their birth registered with their province. And so another service that we offer is we will dig into our records, the treaty pay lists, the Indian registration system, and we'll write in a letter every instance and outline every instance in which an individual's age or birth appears in our records, and they can take our letter and to a uh, provincial vital statistics office and they can obtain a delayed birth registration. And that enables uh, people of retirement age to uh, obtain old age security benefits. And so that's a, another thing that I'm very pleased with that I'm able to be part of. That sounds utterly fantastic. Yeah. Joel Sherlock, thank you very much. Thank you very much. All right. We hope to have you again sometime. Absolutely. All right. Thank you. Thanks. This has been another episode of So What? The podcast about library and information science research and why it matters. So What? is created and produced by students at the Faculty of Information and Media Studies at Western University in London, Ontario. Find us online at sowhat.fims.uwo.ca. 